and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Carissa Byrne-Hessick, Ransdell Distinguished Professor of Law and Director of the Prosecutor and Politics Project at the University of North Carolina School of Law. We will discuss her article, The Myth of Common Law Crimes, which will appear in the Virginia Law Review. So welcome to the program, Carissa. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, well, it's my pleasure. I really enjoyed reading your article this afternoon. Um, and I think the title's great, especially because it's a little bit something of a bait and switch. So maybe you could say a little something about, you know, what is the myth of common law crimes? Or maybe based on my reading of the paper, maybe even what are the myths of common law crimes? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And um, And I agree with your reading. I think that there are two um, related myths associated with common law crimes. Um, The first myth is that uh, while we used to have a system of common law crimes in this country, uh, that's been discarded in favor of a system of criminal statutes. Um, I'll explain what that means in a minute. And then the second myth is that that shift from common law crimes to statutes Um, has made the country and the criminal justice system in particular a better place. All right. Mm. So let me explain what I mean by all of that, because that (laughs) probably sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook. So um, a common law crime is really, um, you could use it to refer to a couple of different things. Um, The big thing to keep in mind is that the schoolhouse rock version of laws, right? The bill starts in the legislature. Um, That's where it's written. It gets enforced by the executive and interpreted by the judiciary, by the judges. That that really oversimplifies um, law. Um, And it especially oversimplifies law from the beginning of when the U.S. started. Um, So it used to be that legislatures only wrote a very few number of laws. And most of the laws, instead of being written down as statutes, were created through cases. So, and this didn't just start in America. We, you know, the people who settled America brought that system over with them from England. And what happened was judges in individual cases were just trying to resolve a dispute, right? If it was a a property case, it's a dispute between two parties. And a criminal law case is usually a dispute between the government and the person that they've accused of a crime, right? The defendant. And what judges would do is they would try to figure out what the right, right right rules ought to be. So yeah, everybody agreed that you should go to jail if you murder someone. But over time, courts came up with the idea of self-defense. Like you, you did kill somebody and you did it on purpose, but you only did it because they were threatening you. And then they also came up with other ideas. Like, yes, you killed someone, but maybe it happened... Um, after that other person had provoked you and caused a really bad situation. And so we'll develop something that doesn't punish you quite as hard. So they came up with the idea of manslaughter instead of murder. So all of these terms, right, self-defense, murder, manslaughter, those should sound familiar to people because we continue to use them in the law. But Congress didn't write those laws, right? State legislatures didn't write those laws. 
judges came up with those laws in the first place. So that's that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about common law crimes. I'm talking about the process of coming up with the law in the context of individual cases, and then over time using those individual cases to come up with broad principles that we could think of as laws or rules. That was a very long answer about what a common law crime is. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, initially, was all crime punished via the common law or is a mix of common law and statutory crimes? And sort of how has that developed over time? Because it seems like crime is almost entirely, or at least on its face or ostensibly almost entirely statutory at this point. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, it did largely start out as, as common law, right? These rules were developed in individual cases, but even back before America started, um, Parliament in England would sometimes pass some laws. So there would be some criminal statutes, but most crimes were handled through this common law system, and they didn't have statutes that accompanied them. And then uh, you come to America, and it's the same sort of thing. Most laws were these, most criminal law were these common law crimes. And then every once in a while, a legislature would pass a statute creating new crimes. So if you look at some of the earliest laws that Congress passed, they include some crimes about like stealing stuff from like customs officers or something like that. And then over time, um, Congress and state legislatures became more active. They started passing more laws. And there was a movement actually at some point – Uh, to try to codify all of the laws, right, to try to take all of these laws and and put them in statutes. Um, It was sort of a codification movement. And when we teach our students in first-year criminal law, so I teach first-year criminal law at UNC, the textbooks tell the students that this happened, and they tell them that this was a really good shift, right, that the the criminal justice system and and America, right, are better because we now write down all of our laws in statutes. And so it's very clear to everyone what's illegal beforehand. They are generally applicable laws, and there's no confusion about what's legal or illegal. And then that way, too, we can apply the laws in an even-handed and uniform manner. But the truth is, Brian, <laughs> um, <laughs> not so much. <laughs> well, not only do we not necessarily we don't we don't apply our um, our written laws in a fair and even handed manner. But um, but even going a step further back than that, it's just not true that we've sort of gotten rid of the common law. A number of states um, actually still permit their courts to develop common law crimes. Um, new crimes, forward-looking crimes, although they don't use that power very often, mostly because probably everything that you'd want to be illegal is already illegal some way or another. Um, but in addition to that, so, um, there's it's pretty clear that a lot of times legislatures are still leaving the job of figuring out what the law ought to be to judges, um, sometimes because they're incorporating the common law explicitly. So in 
my adopted home state of North Carolina, there are a couple of really high profile crimes um, that aren't even defined in the statutes, right? They just say, you know, use the common law definition of, you know, burglary or robbery or what have you. But also, too, you know, legislatures will leave this important job of developing the law to judges by enacting statutes that don't have defined terms, leaving it to the judges to figure out what should fall within that criminal law and what should fall without it. And then I think maybe the most obvious example of this is all of the laws that we have that um, define illegal conduct in terms of whether it was unreasonable. Um, you know, what's reasonable or unreasonable really sort of depends on the person and the circumstances. And the people writing those laws, they know full well that the judges are going to have to make law on a case-by-case basis. And to the extent we develop any clear rules in those circumstances, it's only because they would have developed out of the case law the same way that we did with the common law. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that a big part or kind of a defining feature of why we call certain forms of lawmaking common lawmaking is the way in which it we delegate some form of discretion to the judges to kind of decide what the law is going to be in relation to particular facts. And so it seems like the argument that people were making about you know, making the law codified and statutory in a criminal law context was to reduce that discretion. And one thing that it seemed like from your paper was you're pointing out how in so many different contexts, that same kind of discretion is still there in a codified criminal law. Yeah. So this gets at the second myth, right? So so I say that, that there are these two myths. The first myth is um, – um, I call it a descriptive myth, right? That that we've had this shift from common law to statutes. And I say that that's overstated. The common law still mm. plays a really big role in the criminal law. But the second myth, um, I call the normative myth, which is uh, the myth that we've um, we've made things better and that things that you might call rule of law principles like accountability and notice and fairness – um, that those things have all improved with the shift from common law to statutes. And I don't think it has, even for statutes where they're written very clearly, I think that we don't have a better system. So so let me give you an example that I think probably everyone can relate to, and that's mm-hmm. um, speed limits, right? So if you have a speed limit of 55 miles an hour, that's a very clear law. It's not leaving any room for the courts to add common law gloss to it at all. It's a very clear law. The sort of laws that people are talking about when they're saying that statutes can provide all of these great rule of law values because everybody knows how fast you can drive. And if you drive faster than that, then you get in trouble. Um, Brian, have you ever driven faster than 55 miles an hour in a 55 mile an hour zone? Well, I actually drive really slow. Uh, my wife, <laughs> my wife does almost all the driving because she can't abide by how slowly I drive. In fact, I I start thinking about things like the next interview that I'm going to record, and then I <laughs> gradually get slower and slower and slower. But even I, even I, have driven faster than the speed limit. Yeah, and and how I'm I'm curious, like how fast. 
do you think you have to be driving to have a good chance of getting pulled over in a 55 mile an hour zone? Well, I, you know, I have to say I had a I had a former police officer in one of my classes a uh-huh. few years ago, and he actually informed me that at least the department that he was in uh, had an eight mile an hour um, requirement over the speed limit, not because the officers thought it was necessary, but because the department felt that because of the tolerances of their speed measuring equipment, that they wouldn't be able to get prosecutions for anything um, that wasn't at least eight miles an hour over. Oh, that's really interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, like when I'm driving down the highway, I'm often going faster than the posted speed limit, but not much, right? I'm usually mm-hmm. going about five miles an hour over the speed limit. And I'm still one of the slowest cars on the highway. Most people are <laughs> passing me. Yeah, yeah, you drive in the right lane. <laughs> I definitely, I drive on the right lane. And I don't <laughs> expect to get pulled over because nobody thinks that the posted speed limit is the speed limit that's going to get enforced. They all Mm -hmm. think it's something above the posted speed limit, but people don't necessarily know how much. Um, I wish I knew uh, where your former student had been because then I could just set my cruise control to eight or to seven, I guess, miles an hour. (laughs) Yeah, I think that was he was like Lawrenceburg or something like rural Kentucky, basically. (laughs) But of course, the problem with the example that I just gave you, right, about the speed limit is that if you're going 56 miles an hour above the speed limit and you get pulled over um, and given a ticket, you can't complain that you were actually following the law. You can't Mm. even complain that they're not enforcing the law fairly. The only way that you can challenge that sort of decision is if you have some sort of proof that they only pulled you over because of your race or your gender or your religion. Um, And it's really hard to get that sort of proof. They don't let you get discovery of it or anything like that. Like you have to be able to prove it. It's really, really hard. Um, And basically we have to be able to prove is that um, all these other people who were of a different race, a different religion or whatever, uh, weren't getting pulled over. And the reason they pulled you over were because of these um, fixed characteristics. So you lose those cases all the time. The point is, right, The actual speed limit on that road, what we might call sort of like the real law, is set by individual police officers or individual police departments. They don't have to tell us what it is. They don't have to enforce it in an even-handed manner. And there's not much we can do to complain about it. Yeah. Well, that's one thing that really struck me is that, you know, You point out in your article that, you know, this kind of supposedly devastating critique of common law crimes is like, oh my God forbid, you know, that judges should have any sort of discretion over what counts as criminal activity with no acknowledgement of that, that instead what we get is cops and prosecutors with discretion. (laughs) No, that's right. And I mean, this is actually something, um, that really motivated me to finally write this paper. I'd been sort of stewing about the problems in this paper for quite a while. Um, And something that really motivated me to write it was every time I would sort of, I would mention, um, you know, questions about the division of power in the criminal justice system to people, um, People that I spoke to, not necessarily other criminal law professors, but other non-criminal law professors, my lawyer friends, 
uh, my friends who weren't lawyers but thought that they could argue with lawyers, all of those people, they would always tell me that um, they didn't want judges making these decisions because judges weren't supposed to make the law, right? The legislature was supposed to make the law. The judges weren't supposed to make the law. And there was something about that that just really struck me as off. First, Mm -hmm. because legislatures actually aren't doing a very good job making the law. Um, They write laws that they know um, aren't going to be enforced as written. I mean, so there's that. And I can come back and give an example about that in a second. But the other thing is, I just don't buy all of the arguments about why we um, shouldn't allow judges to play anything other than sort of a a ministerial role in our justice system. It Mm -hmm. it just, it strikes me as it makes me uncomfortable to think that judges should never be exercising their judgment or their, their discretion because they've actually in the past served as a big check on the excesses of legislatures and the excesses of prosecutors. And there seems to be something in American discourse right now about having this deep, deep distrust of judges that's convinced us that that's not how we're supposed to run things, right? If you you listen to um, Chief Justice Roberts' confirmation hearing or Neil Gorsuch's confirmation hearing, um, they present this view of judges where the judges are, right, so in, 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 in Roberts's language, just calling balls and strikes, and um, in Gorsuch's view, that they'd make these really crummy legislatures. I mean, I, if I had to choose, I think I'd take the balls and strikes analogy, because at least there, we know that umpires have to exercise some sort of discretion, and that there are close yeah. calls, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and honestly, I don't know that judges could make any worse legislators than legislators do. Yeah. And and let me just say really quickly, and this is something that drives me a little bit crazy. Um, legislatures don't like to write narrow criminal laws. They like to write very, very broad criminal laws. So one of my least favorite phrases in a criminal law is any and all. Because courts take that phrase really seriously, right? If it says any and all whatever, then no matter how trivial um, the defendant's conduct was, the court is going to say, technically it falls within the language of the statute and basically say that their their hands are tied. And you can trace this a little bit to, I think, um, the rise of of textualism, which is this method of interpretation that that's all of a part with the stuff that I was just saying about how mm-hmm. you know judges should play this more ministerial role. Yeah, well, one thing that I found really compelling in the paper as well is the way you you point out that not only are a lot of these criminal statutes, which are supposedly so you know carefully written so as to communicate information about what you can and can't do to people, et cetera, et cetera, written you know incredibly broadly to cover as much conduct as possible and functionally give all this discretion to to cops. And, and prosecutors, but also that, that there's a kind of disturbing percentage or number of criminal laws where the language of the statute doesn't even seem to cover some of the things that people are charged with. 
That's right. That's right. So um, the overly broad laws, I think that that's something that's getting a little bit more attention nowadays. The Supreme Court took a couple of cases with really, really bad facts and um, these serious laws that seem to sweep in trivial conduct. So I'll give you one example. Um, There was a woman whose husband was having an affair and the woman was very angry when she found out about the affair. And so um, she uh, decided to deal with it by getting um, some chemicals that she ordered off of Amazon, um, and she put them on the mailbox and the doorknob of the mistress's house. And um, there, nothing bad happened to the mistress. I think at one point she got a, an irritation on her skin from one of it, and she was able to treat it by running it under cold water, and that fixed the problem. But Congress had passed this law in response to a chemical weapons treaty, and they had written the definition of a chemical weapon so broadly that it included the chemicals that this woman had ordered off of Amazon. And in upholding her conviction for a statute that carries um, a maximum penalty of 20 years in prison, the Third Circuit was like, I mean... The government's argument about how to interpret this statute would allow us to say that there are chemical weapons underneath the basically the kitchen sink of almost everybody in the country. But reading the text of the statute, we can't really say that their interpretation is wrong. So we have these really, really, really overly broad statutes and Congress and the state legislatures, they're really just relying on prosecutors to use their good judgment But if the prosecutors don't use their good judgment or they don't use what I think is good judgment, there's nothing to be done, right? You can't bring a lawsuit saying, yes, Congress passed this law, but they were really thinking about something else and, um, you know, you should overturn my conviction because of it. Like, that's unfortunately not what we do nowadays in modern courts. We say that um, judges shouldn't be in the business of trying to figure out what Congress really meant to do. Instead, they should just be looking at the words and what Congress actually said. Yeah, when you use you use the crime of of insider trading to illustrate a lot of these issues in your paper, which I found really compelling, you know, because I read a lot of Matt Levine and he's always talking about how what's insider trading? Well, basically anything is insider trading, depending on whether or not effectively DOJ wants it to be. (laughs) Um, And, you know, and it certainly struck me as being like, well, you know, that was my experience in practice, right? Like what's going to count as insider trading? Pretty much anything can. And it also reminded me of the way that federal prosecutors tend to use obstruction of justice charges as well. Am I right on that second one or, or am I misunderstanding? No, I mean, I think um, obstruction of justice is really difficult, right? Because um, what's going to distinguish a crime in that situation um, from totally legal conduct that someone is allowed to do is um, – Uh, I don't even know what I would call it. It's sort of like their attitude or almost their motive. It's the word corruptly. Um, So I'm allowed to shred my own documents, right? Um, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if your parents did this, but at some point my parents became obsessed with shredding all of these documents. They got worried about like identity theft or something, 
right? So there are people shred a whole lot of these personal documents that they have, and that's totally permitted. But if you start shredding those documents because there's something in there that you're trying to hide during an investigation, then suddenly that is arguably illegal under the obstruction of justice statute. And let me tell you, it's complicated to figure out where to draw that line. You're rarely going to have somebody say, oh, yeah, no, I definitely shredded those documents because I was trying to make sure that this investigation against me didn't proceed. Um prosecutors have to rely on circumstantial evidence to try to convince juries of what's happening. But but let's be clear, um, most of the time, prosecutors aren't bringing these cases to juries. They're using the leverage that's given to them by these really harsh sentences to get people to plea bargain. And that leads to something that you alluded to earlier, which is people will plead guilty to behavior. And it's not really clear that that behavior falls within the text of the statute. Um, I've seen some plea transcripts where people were pleading guilty to a crime and the judge is asking all of these questions of the defense attorney and the prosecutor trying to figure out how the conduct actually matches up with the statute. And they aren't necessarily getting particularly good answers. Um, But you know, the defendant has decided to take the plea deal. And a lot of judges take a really passive role right now to guilty pleas. And so because of that, um, the interpretations that prosecutors are giving to statutes, even if the statute isn't written in a really overly broad way, are often never getting in front of a judge so that the judge can try to interpret it. Yeah, you know, one thing, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but it was one thing you talked about in your paper a little bit that I was I was interested in if you had any further thoughts about, which was sort of some of these common law criminal doctrines that judges will use to sort of or can use to kind of cabin the scope of criminal punishment, things like the rule of lenity and stuff like that. Um, and I'm wondering, I mean, do you think this increasing kind of uh, codification of criminal law and de-emphasis of of common law crimes or the concept of common law interpretation of criminal statute as a formal matter, if not as a practical matter, makes it harder for judges to use, effectively use those kinds of limiting principles in criminal law? Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to disentangle the fact that judges are no longer using things from the rule of lenity from um, from sort of a sense that they're not supposed to, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Right. The rule of lenity started falling out. Of, the rule of lenity used to be very strong. And, and when statutes first sort of came into fashion as the major way to criminalize conduct, um, Judges were pretty hostile to them. Um, Mila Sahoni at um, at San Diego has this really lovely article called Notice and the New Deal. And she talks about how, um, you know, in the Lochner era, sort of before the, the switch in time that saved nine, that courts weren't just pushing back on all of this New Deal legislation um, 
having to do with like labor conditions and stuff like that. They were also employing the rule of lenity quite often to push back against statutes. And if you go back and read your Blackstone or whatever, you can see judges doing the same thing. The strict construction of penal statutes was something that was really in fashion. And as the court um, abandoned its objections to the administrative state and to broad federal legislation, they also abandoned these tools um, to push back against criminal law legislation as well. And Mila does a nice job sort of drawing that all together and showing um, how those concepts are related to one another. And I, if you have, you know, if you're looking for an interesting paper that connects criminal law trends to other things, I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a fabulous read. So I, Oh, I definitely, I will definitely check it out. I'm working on a Lochner era related project myself right now. And that sounds fantastic. Oh, then you definitely love it. Yeah. It's a, it's a great paper. So I guess I'm having, I have a hard time trying to decide if I think that the abandonment of the rule of lenity is um, sort of of a part with uh, with judges saying that they have to play a more minimal role, because it, you know, the rule of lenity also doesn't fare very well under sort of a purposivist approach to interpreting statutes either. Because if you're trying to interpret a statute according to the purpose of the legislature, the purpose of the legislature is mostly to criminalize stuff. So <laughs> it's not to write a narrow statute that criminalized less stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so in – if I may, like kind of characterize your, your, your paper as arguing that like, you know, we've got this first myth that – we're not doing common law crime anymore because in reality so many of the the kind of the the fun- so much of the functionality of what we used to call common common law crime is still functioning within the criminal justice system and we've got this second myth that that shifting from a common law crime to a to a codified crime sort of model is an improvement that's going to you know make criminal law better or, you know, better at achieving the kind of goals that we want it to achieve. Um, what kind of lessons should we take away from that? Like as, as kind of as a society or as judges thinking about what law should look like, like what should we do with these observations that you're making? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't think that we should return to the sort of colonial days of of judges being in charge of what was legal or illegal. And I don't think that we should scrap our criminal codes entirely and just sort of um, let things be figured out on a case-by-case basis. I think I'm trying to I'm trying to achieve two things with the article, or maybe three. First of all, I just don't want to say things that are false. That drives me crazy. Um, and as somebody who has been teaching these, you know, this this story about the shift and the principle of legality, as we call the move to, to codification, it really bothered me that we were telling our students something that wasn't true. But it also really bothered me that we were telling them this story as this triumph, right? The triumph of the rule of law and that the country has gotten better, when in reality, I think in a lot of ways, the the criminal justice system has gotten worse. I sort of I spend the last third of the paper cataloging the ways in which 
um, the modern system with all of the the hidden discretion given to prosecutors and law enforcement is, you know, provides less notice. It provides less accountability. It does a worse job of separating powers. It does a worse job of making sure we have uniform enforcement. It's, it's, it's worse, which is, it's really remarkable that we've, we've told ourselves this lie that makes us look better. But on top of that, I worry that it um, allows us to paper over the ways in which our current system is really failing us. It encourages judges to keep having this really sort of passive attitude. And, you know, I chose the common law framing for a reason, which is if you read these criminal law textbooks, um, if you read these criminal law textbooks, you'll see them talk about common law crimes as if they're a boogeyman. So I'm trying to basically say whatever you think was the bad old days Things are actually they're actually worse now. So hopefully it'll be a bit of a clarion call that instead of permitting things to continue as they are now, that judges af- actually have to take a much more active role in interpreting the law, in pushing back on um, on the powers that prosecutors um, exercise. It's not clear to me that they have to be nearly as passive as they are in accepting pleas, for example, um, or that they have to wait until a jury has been impaneled to give definitive interpretations of statutes. I don't sketch out all of these things necessarily in this paper. I'm working on a new paper about statutory interpretation and criminal laws that I'm hoping is going to provide a little bit of a roadmap about how to improve. But the goal of this paper, I think, was just trying trying to sort of ring the alarm bell. Yeah, cool. Well, I I really look forward to reading the follow-up paper. Um, I'm confident this one's going to have a big impact on the conversation, and I wouldn't be surprised if it finds itself into a way of it finds itself into a lot of criminal law case books as well. Because I mean, I think it's really kind of counterintuitive in the best possible way. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so, thank you so much for coming on the program, Chris. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks again, Brian. We're here with Alan Arkin, who's one of the stars of the new comedy, Fire Sale. Is there any sex or violence in Fire Sale? Rob and I hold each other and jump up and down at one point. Would that be sex or violence? I don't want to get into any philosophical discussions about where sex begins and where violence ends, or vice versa. Fire Sale. It's just plain nuts. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested.